I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast. I'm your host, Tim Viegas. If you aren't familiar with who we are, our main goal is to build a bridge between parents, educators, and people with disabilities to advocate for inclusive education. We do this by publishing articles on Think Inclusive by disabled writers, parents of children with disabilities, and educators who are all in for inclusion. We're a big group, and we are only getting bigger. This podcast is an extension of what we try to do every day on the website. And in a surprising plot twist, this will be the last episode of Season 7. So let me explain. The last time we talked, it was June 2020, and humanity was smack dab in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. We didn't know if students or educators were going to be let into school buildings, or if there even was going to be a 2021 school year. Well, a funny thing happened while the world was falling apart. I got a new job. In this job market, you gasp? I was shocked as well. The Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education has hired me to be their director of communications, which means that for one, producing this podcast is going to be part of my job. And not only that, but Think Inclusive is now MCIE's official blog. I just want to pause and savor this moment because if it wasn't for all of you listening and sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues, I don't think we would be here today. So thank you. Now, what does this mean for you as the listener and the future of the podcast? 
Well, honestly, you won't notice much of a difference except that the podcast is going to be laser focused on inclusive education and that MCIE will be mentioned quite a bit more frequently, which brings me to something else I wanted to share. I had to make the tough decision to not publish a few interviews that were scheduled to be produced. So for Lisa Drennan, Kyle and Brent Peace, Michelle Tetchner, and Nancy Tarshis, my sincerest apologies. In order for us to get rolling on the new season and editorial calendar for Think Inclusive and MCIE, some things had to get cut. But for those of you who are interested in hearing the complete unedited interviews of everyone I just mentioned and get access to the whole archive of unedited interviews, there is an easy fix. Become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast and check out the $1, 5 and $10 a month tiers. Okay, that's enough of the commercial. In the next season, I will get you some additional information about how it will all work. So today, I'm very excited about the interviews that we have. Um, first, we have Amy Langerman, a special education attorney and advocate in California and Arizona, and we discuss the difficulty of some parents that um, are seeking the least restrictive environment for their child and how services are delivered in both of those states. Next up, we have Amanda Sologi and Vicki Brett from the Inclusive Education Project, which is a fantastic podcast if you don't already know about them. And we also discuss LRE and strategies that you can take to help advocate for inclusive education wherever you are on your inclusion journey. Okay, y'all ready? After a short break, my interview with Amy Langerman, as well as Amanda Slogi and Vicki Brett of the Inclusive Education Project. Thanks for listening. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you uh, came into special education law? Well, you know, none of us who, who went to law school, I think, actually started out back in the day thinking, I'm going to be a special education lawyer. But like many who end up in this profession, we get there with the diagnosis because we all end up in a doctor's office one day where a doctor is looking at you and giving you a doom and gloom diagnosis. And the one who did that to me is one I affectionately refer to as Dr. Doom and Gloom. Because back in 1995, she told me that my then two-year-old would end up in a group home on Social Security, would never have a job, not get married, and that my three-month-old baby would probably be benefited if I had another child so that he would have a sibling. Um, and this is actually what they told me, and, and I walked out of there in a daze and uh, went and had a lost weekend and then woke up the following Monday and decided to become the world's leading expert on my kid 
Mm-hmm. Um, and in the process, learned quite a bit about autism and uh, learned about special education and had to file due process five times against my son's uh, three different school districts along the way in order to get the free and appropriate public education to which he was entitled. So that's how I uh, got into it. And when I decided I no longer wanted to be a trial lawyer and I wanted to have a more peaceful existence, I decided I would work with children full-time. And that's what I do in two different states. In California, I'm a consultant because I'm not licensed as a lawyer here. And I go to IEP meetings and help plan for educational outcomes. And in Arizona, I still go back and and handle due process litigation when advocates and social workers and people who do consulting are unable to get uh, FAPE at an IEP table. Do you see a big difference between Arizona and California and how they deliver services and then also um, just the differences in how they interpret the law? Uh, Absolutely. It could just be that California is candidly ahead of the game uh, in terms of where it is. It's why I moved to California because they were 10, 15 years ahead of where Arizona was and I needed a better school for my son with autism uh, because what we were getting down in Arizona required him to go to a private school and be segregated because the public school system was uh, simply unable to uh, individualize a program. And what they saw was autism, therefore he should go to what in those days we called an MR program. Um, It was a self-contained class where there were low expectations, even though he was by then several years above grade level. It was undisputed that he would do better in a smaller class, and therefore this is the smaller class we have, you will go here. Um, If we had better inclusive education, he would have stayed in inclusion where he started, um, but we didn't have the support for that in Arizona. In California, what happened about, I don't know, five or eight years ago is there was a huge audit of one of the largest school districts in all of California, San Diego Unified, and they were found to be segregating students. And they, in one year, pretty much abolished most of their self-contained classes and said we're going to be an inclusion model. They don't do it well, but following that um, audit, a lot of other school districts realized this is what the law requires, this is where we're going to need to go, we better figure it out. And some schools invested in supports The school district where I consult for the majority of my time has two full-time inclusion specialists, each of whom have an assistant. They have a person who adapts curriculum, and then they have a TOSA, a teacher on special assignment, who is district-wide supporting inclusion. And so when you need to get those supports, they exist because inclusion cannot be successful without supports. And we see more and more school districts in California going this way uh, and eventually providing the supports and the training and the services that are needed. In Arizona, uh, LRE is a a dirty word. Uh, When you ask for it, they tell you no. They have all sorts of reasons why, none of which are legally sustainable. Um, They never first consider an inclusive placement and determine whether or not it might work. They just offer you a segregated classroom. 
and we have had to fight and fight and fight to get inclusive placements. And even then, because the districts just don't like it, um, they don't support it, and it's hard to impose that on a general education teacher without getting them the training and the support. So in Arizona, they have vouchers um, where you can get your special education money and leave public education. And many of us who support parents and students with disabilities in Arizona will recommend just take the voucher and go get a private school and take your money and fund your own education. And it's tragic because if you really want an inclusive placement, you should be at your neighborhood school. But if your neighborhood school won't want you, makes it difficult for you to be there. Um, it's pretty sad that you have to either go find a charter school or take the voucher and run. So I do see a significant difference principally uh, as it relates to LRE because that's something that I'm now training on nationally and that I support for many, many students, particularly those with intellectual disabilities. Mm. Um, so in Arizona, uh, do you do you see any trends toward moving toward a more inclusive system or uh, is it going to take something like a, a larger legal action um, for, for, for that state to change? Well, uh, there, there is no such thing as a larger legal action. If you're thinking of something like a class action or something like that, it turns out uh, under the IDEA, the Individual Disability Education Act, that's um, next to impossible because the I means individual. Mm. And so they're looking at individual needs and individual uh, rights. And so trying to say you're doing this to everybody um, is hard uh, to make as a legal argument. Uh, that being said, there are all sorts of problems with the Arizona education system. The teachers went on, they don't call it a strike, but um, they were picketing, they have an organization, they're not getting paid adequately. Uh, and I think that what has to happen is the entire education system in Arizona has to implode and then it will change. Um, what happens instead is you know, every time that something starts to explode in the Arizona educational system, five new charter schools open up um, because Arizona has significant numbers of charter schools. And uh, so, you know, that makes it harder to support uh, public education when the way to support it is um, to all work together instead of to separate and, and diversify into how many different charter schools. So I'd like to say that things will change, but uh, and I'm really trying hard. I'm doing quite a number of preschool LRE cases, um, so starting at the beginning, when the child comes in at three and the district's first and only offer is a segregated school, at that point in time, the student is not legally mandated to go to school because they're under six. And what we do is the student's parent privately enrolls the student in a private general education preschool and we file due process, arguing that the district failed to even consider an inclusive setting, and in fact, they can't because they don't have one. And you'll be at an IEP meeting, I'll be listening to these tapes, and they'll say things like, well, we can only offer you what we have, and this is our program, and so this is our offer. And it turns out that has been clearly and unequivocally uh, outlawed um, by OSEP, 
that they can't do that. Even if they don't have one, they can still offer the continuum by finding schools in the community, uh, religiously-based schools, Montessori schools, uh, Head Start schools that are general education schools. And so I've had, I don't know, six, seven, eight of those in the last three years. And of recent vintage, all of them settle. Not a single one gets tried. They have no defense. And because they have no defense, I'm able, as part of the settlement, to require district-wide training as part of the settlement, that they have to train everyone on the legal requirement to offer preschool LRE. And then I also require them to have training and support and services by kindergarten so that they have an inclusion program so that when this child is done with preschool and is coming back to his or her home school, there is an inclusion school there that they have to place the student in an inclusion placement with support and training. So, you know, one student at a time, one district at a time, I'm trying to at least educate. Um, but until they have a, a longstanding history and can see the dramatic changes that are made when you have kids, with, particularly with intellectual disabilities, who are in inclusive placements, the kind of independence we're seeing, the kind of um, abilities we're seeing that you don't see when they're segregated and protected and we're you know, protecting the environment from them and they never learn how to navigate in a world that's going to be a challenge for them. In the real world, they're not going to understand a lot of what's going around them because they have intellectual disabilities. So by putting them in that world from day one and teaching them to use their strengths to offset their weaknesses, they have 18 years of, of time to, to learn how to survive and be successful in that environment. And we're seeing much better outcomes. And the research supports that. So, you know, I hope someday Arizona will, will go that route, but it's been a hard struggle to get them to consider it. Do you see uh, this as a as a uh, viable strategy for for uh, parents and families in other states who are having the same problem with trying to get their, their child included in preschool? Yeah. It's not just preschool. It's all over the place. Uh, first grade, kindergarten, middle school, whatever the case may be, particularly high school, it's like, oh, my goodness. Um, you know, how are they going to be successful? There's, you know, it's calculus and it's geometry and, and integrated math one. There's no way that we could possibly include these children in such classes. And I actually had a program manager say to me at one point years ago now, you know, in middle school, they do plate tectonics. And how meaningful will plate tectonics be for Billy? Uh, fake name, but you get the point. And literally, that was her argument. It's like, this won't be meaningful to him because he it's over his head. So we ought to put him in a class where we can dumb it down and lower the expectation and give him something, you know, more palatable, like counting to 10 and playing barnyard bingo. And so when she said that to me, you know, how meaningful would play tectonics be? And I looked her straight in the eye without missing a beat. And I said, well, how meaningful was it for you? And, and she looked at, you know, me with this quizzical look because, you know, I'm being impertinent, right? And, and you know, I'm 61 years old, so an old lady being impertinent, that's, you know. And, and I looked at her and I said, you know, the reason I asked that is I'm not just trying to be, you know, smart alecky here, but I had to take plate tectonics when I was a kid. And I'm, you know, in my 50s or 60s or whatever, however old I was. 
And I got to be honest with you, until today, I've never mentioned those words my entire educational lifetime or professional lifetime. So however meaningful it was for you or for me, I find it to be a useless curriculum, but the state mandates it. So I think that Billy should have the same opportunity to participate in the same useless curriculum that everyone else gets to participate in. You ask me, what, what's the strategy for the parent? The only way for the parent to overcome any of this is through due process. So, you know, imagine what that looks like is you have a dispute with your school district and they want to put your child in a self-contained class or he's already in a self-contained class and you want them in a more inclusive class and they say no and so you want to file. And you go ahead and you file and the problem is your child is in their control and they control the data and the evidence. And so they can make it say whatever they want. And the teachers will always come in and say, oh, he's doing horribly, he makes no progress, it isn't meaningful for him, whatever the case may be, because it's not that they're necessarily lying to, to sell the party line, but in their mind, a general education teacher's mind, progress is measured the way it is for the non-disabled children. Fantastic. Um, thanks for being on the podcast, Vicki and Amanda. Um, I'm thanks really for looking forward. Me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, been looking forward to this conversation for a long, long time. Uh, would you mind, you know, you're going to have to fight it out on who gets to introduce who you are, but could you, <laughs> could you, one of you, uh, let our listeners know um, who you are and, you know, what IEP California is? Sure. So this is Amanda. I'll go ahead and, and start with a little bit of my background. I, uh, in college, I was a child development major, kind of going back and forth trying to figure out my path in life and what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, initially thinking I was going to go into teaching special education, and I had the, the wonderful benefit of working at a full inclusion charter school uh, in Southern California uh, called Chime Charter, where 20% of the population was uh, children on IEPs or who had special needs and fully included into the general education population. And it was one of those schools, still is, that is a one in a million amazing work that they do to really ensure that inclusive education practices um, happens on a day-to-day -day basis. And I fell in love with the students that I worked with. I really found how wonderful the, the inclusivity of the school helped all of the kids. And while I kind of realized the roadblocks that teachers face um, going into this field, my aunt's a special ed teacher, so I saw it firsthand from her as well, um, I realized that it, it may not have been my, my path. I was, I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to speak out and, and stand up for the kids as much as I wanted. So it kind of led me to law school in a way that, um, you know, I heard about families having to get attorneys and um, never thought I would be an attorney, but really just, it kind of made sense to me that this is this is what I was I was supposed to do. It, it interconnected um, the advocacy work I wanted to do and and really working um, hands on with these families. So went to law school specifically to do this area of law and met Vicky. Yeah, and uh, I was a year ahead of Amanda in law school, and um, <clears throat> we actually met a abroad studying in um, studying abroad in Spain. And I needed a couple more units, and she's like, hey, I'm doing this special education clinic at our um, law school at the time. 
um, was one of the very few that had a special education clinic. And so um, I enrolled in the class, very quickly got pulled out of her class to go to, so that was the Los Angeles um, section, and I got pulled to the Orange County section because I speak Spanish. Um, so we didn't even get end up getting that class, but we kept in touch. Um, I went off and worked at a small boutique law firm that did a little bit of special education and then family law and personal injury. Um, and then once Amanda graduated, we'd get together every um, every so often and we'd talk about our cases and how um, we just felt really great after leaving each other. Um, and uh, after about her being an attorney for two years and me almost being an attorney for three uh, we just decided to take the, the plunge and create our nonprofit um, as well as um, a law firm, a, a private law firm. But now with the Inclusive Education Project, we found just such a bigger medium to reach out to people. So we actually have a podcast, um, the Inclusive Education Project podcast. And, um, you know, we can talk forever, right? We're attorneys and, and, and part of the the thing that we came across with our families was that uh, this just it was so limited their re- resources right they, they didn't even know other families were affected in the same way they were so part of the reason for the podcast was just to record ourselves and, and put it out there um, and as it's grown um, this is, will be our third year that we're going into um, we're just noticing that it's doing something so much bigger and just like think inclusive it's getting it out there, the awareness, um, and creating understanding so that people don't segregate or identify and put a label on people. So our nonprofit has become even more than just the advocacy that we do on an individual basis for our clients. It's really becoming a movement. For Think Inclusive, um, we get a lot of questions via email about specific situations and it's it's always difficult to answer a question about a specific situation when you don't have the whole context um and and so just in general terms um you know uh we want the least restrictive environment for a student and in the law uh the law provides um specific alternate placements as a continuum, a continuum of placements. So, so when right. you look at when you look at LRE, the the law assumes that at least some kids will be served in a, another placement. So I'm wondering how do you navigate that discussion with the family and with the district in a collaborative way, like, like what you were talking about. So. The discussion about LRE, I find, is one of the biggest mistakes that IEP teams can have. Um, I'd say nine times out of ten when I'm at an IEP meeting, this conversation is glossed over. Um, Maybe they mention the part in the document where it discusses it, but the law requires a true discussion, meaning multiple people providing opinions and discussing the ins and outs of the option, not just one person making a recommendation and everybody else taking it as face value that that's just what's going to happen. Um, so, you know, we often say the, the most important part of an initial IEP is that discussion of placement because where you start from the initial IEP often is where you're going to be for a while. 
um, once a child is placed in a segregated special day class or home instruction or residential placement, it's more difficult to come back to a less restrictive environment. So that very first discussion is, is one of, of high importance that I don't think many IEP teams often um, really illuminate that importance. So when we're in an IEP meeting, let's say for an initial, um, one of the first things that we recommend is having the team, so everybody, kind of discuss their thoughts. Now, the law requires you to very first talk about general education, not jump to a special day class discussion or whatnot. The law really requires the team to say, okay, we've established goals, we've established present levels, we've established accommodations and supports that we believe the student needs to accomplish these goals. The next step should be how can, if we can, provide these supports and accomplish these goals within a general education setting. And the team really should be diving really deep in this conversation. If there is a goal on math, um, if there is a goal on cutting, if there is an articulation goal, the conversation needs to stem, can this goal, can this accommodation be provided in a gen ed class? More often than not, that question is never asked. Um, a lot of times schools will say, okay, we talked about all these goals, we talked about these accommodations. We have this special day class that has all of this already embedded in, so it sounds great. And a lot of families hear that and think, wonderful, right? They don't question it because they think, you're telling me my child needs these supports. I kind of agree that they need these supports. You're saying this classroom has it. Great. But what's missing is that conversation of just because it's embedded in this segregated classroom doesn't mean it can't be provided in a gen ed classroom. And more often than not, the answer to the question of can it be put in the gen ed class is yes. I really like how you I really like how you laid that out. Um, and I completely agree that the placement discussion often gets glossed over. And I find that especially towards um, later in the school career of a student. So by the time you're in middle school and the student is already in a special day class or a self-contained special education class, um, you know, for students with intellectual disabilities, when you get to placement, everyone's like, all right, so we're good, right? Right, <laughs> you know, right. Like, yeah. like we don't have that robust discussion again. Um, right. Mm -hmm. um, um, what are some strategies for for those families who maybe – you know, had not advocated for their child at the beginning, um, but now are coming later uh, in later years, but still want it. How, how are they advocating for inclusion? I think you start with the inclusion the child already gets. I think this is something else that's also glossed over. So let's say that the child, um, if there's, um, I'll start with elementary. I really liked your hypothetical, but I had this while Amanda was talking, and I just wanted to be sure that I share it. Um, and so, um, kiddo, uh, you say, hey, I really think my kid needs to be included more. Well, um, they are. They are at recess um, and art and music. Um, oh, yeah, art got cut, so it's just music um, and assemblies. Okay. 
So then I think you need to start asking more questions because at recess, what ends up happening is a lot of the sped kids are let out to recess and then they all hang out with each other. So what are you doing to actually include the child with other children? Do they have somebody that's prompting them to socialize? You know, I think you start with that, right? And then you really get a sense of how is this team? Because if the team's already doing that, then you're, you already got a great foundation to say, you know, one of Bobby's strengths is reading. Um, and I think that maybe at least for the first 20 minutes that a class is talking about reading um, or they're reading a story, maybe he should be pushed into that classroom, right? And, and because you guys already do a great job on the recess, you know, blah, blah, blah. Most of the time that's not going to happen, right? They're not including them in recess. They're not really doing stuff, and you have to force it. I think along that line, if, if they're receptive to it, then you know you have a team that's going to be receptive to push in for, for classroom instruction, again, using the child's strengths, right? Um, and if you get it to where I think most of the teams are, where they're not going to be receptive, um, then then you say, okay, well, how are we going to make this happen, right? And you're just very consistent and persistent in making it known that my child is entitled to be in the least restrictive environment and recess when you guys aren't even doing what you're supposed to in including them in an appropriate way um, is not good enough. Um, the assemblies are not good enough. Um, and I think that that's how – I guess from my perspective is how a client can build that case because it might get to a point where you need us. We hope you don't. But most of the time if you come from that like inquisitive, how can we make this happen? How can we do this together? You know, they're not waking up and saying, I don't want to include this kid. They just don't know how, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you start questioning and everybody is together and they can talk about it and it can be collaborative, we see a lot more progress that way in pushing the child in to be included and including that general education teacher. Do not excuse that person because um, you're going to find that the child is probably like a lot of the other sixth graders, right? And then that helps you include your child more. Just a reminder, if you would like to hear the entire unedited recordings of any of the interviews you heard today or this season, become a Patreon subscriber. It's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast and select the $5 per month tier, and you'll have access to over 10 hours of conversations. Visit the Think Inclusive podcast on the web at thinkinclusive.us. And find Think Inclusive on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and tell us what you thought of the show. You can also subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or on the Anchor app. We'd love to know that you were listening. Thank you to all of our supporters for the last eight years of the podcast. Also, a special shout out to my producer and love of my life, Brianna. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Thanks to my boys. You know who you are for your feedback and suggestions. It is greatly appreciated. You are never going to get me on that paddleboard. Thanks for your time and attention. See you next season. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.